you'll open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 3, we're going to begin today in verse 9. We've been talking, we've, we've really been kind of in a pit for the last few weeks. We've been talking about sin and man's sin nature, human beings in trouble. And it's not a very cheerful topic. By admission, it's very dark. And it's hard even to preach about. I, I told you when I was uh, away for my uh, study retreat a few weeks back that I had failed to take into account that I was going to be immersing myself in the study of sin for ten days as I was preparing these messages for July. And... Um, there really is an impact to that. It's a dark subject. And as we've studied it, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, we have followed Paul's reasoning as he has explained the Scriptures and, and by inspiration explained to us that all people are lost in sin. Those who've never had any inkling of any religious teaching or, or biblical truth have still the law of God written in their hearts, and they still violate their conscience. They still go contrary to what they know. And people who have ethical and moral training still break the rules. They still go their own way. And finally, Jews who had the privilege of God's own personal revelation of His character and of His law and of His principles and teaching, they too have gone their own way. And Paul has been helping us to understand that all people are, are lost without a Savior. That's really the reason that he spends so much time at the beginning of this letter. He's, he's going to spend the rest of the letter talking about the powerful blessing and impact of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But in... in order to appreciate the gospel and understand the need for salvation by grace through Jesus Christ, we have to have this preparation to see why human beings need a Savior. And that's where he's been talking to us. And so today we come to verses 9 through 20. What then are we better than they? He's speaking still in this uh, sentence as a Jew not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. And then Paul begins to um, quote a number of Old Testament passages, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, uh, Isaiah 59. He's bringing all of the teaching of the Old Testament to bear in these summary statements that he quotes. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is Paul's grand summation of the plight of mankind apart from the grace of God. Theologians 
and Bible scholars have referred to this passage as the locus classicus of total depravity. And locus classicus simply means the classical location. If you want to go to a passage of Scripture that describes the depravity of human beings, Romans 3, 9 through 20 is that passage. And in this passage, Paul describes our condition in what, again, theologians have called total depravity. Now, you won't find total depravity as a term in the Scriptures, but you won't find Trinity in the Scriptures. And yet, when you study the Scriptures, you're led to certain conclusions. And the conclusion that Paul brings us to in this passage is that man is totally depraved apart from the grace of God, that we are all in the same soup, as I've been saying. We're all in this same cesspool, really. And we're in there together, and we all suffer from the same condition, and that condition has affected our entire being. Now, this morning, I want to talk about that a little bit to help us understand what the implications of the depravity of humankind really means and what it doesn't mean. I want to look first at what total depravity does not mean. Because sometimes we get the idea that we're worthless, that there's nothing that can come out of us of any value, that we're totally worthless human beings. And friends, that is simply not true. There is nothing more precious and more valuable on this planet than human life and individual human lives. We'll talk about that in a moment, but we place great esteem and value upon life itself for us human beings. Total depravity does not mean that humans are incapable of ever doing anything sacrificial or altruistic, that, that is, putting themselves unselfishly on the line, at least from all appearances. You've all seen the heroic stories that come out of combat when one soldier throws himself on the hand grenade or one soldier runs out under enemy fire to recover a wounded comrade and the risks that are taken and, and the great heroic deeds of bravery that men and women take to protect and help one another under those times of extreme duress. And whatever motivation may be going on in the heart, that is a, a, an incredibly commendable act of selflessness to put oneself at risk of loss of life and sometimes to give one's life for other human beings. And not everyone who does that is a born-again Christian. In fact, we could dare say in the history of the world, there have been far more people who have sacrificed their lives for other humans who are not believers than there are who have just by the sheer equation of the percentages of saved and lost people. For approximately 15 years, I served with a local rescue squad and as a firefighter paramedic, and People who are in public service, who work as police officers, who work as, as firefighters, who work as rescue workers, and all they understand that kind of camaraderie that moves together to help one's fellow human beings. 
I remember standing in the firehouse the morning that those planes flew into the Twin Towers. I was, had just gotten off of an overnight shift and was standing there, heard it on the radio, turned around, went back to the firehouse, and at first we didn't know what it was, but I knew immediately the implications for firefighters, that they were going to be called to go into those buildings. And there was about eight or nine of us standing there in the squad room glued to this big screen TV we had there, and all of a sudden the second plane hit, and we realized that this was not an accident. There was a terrorist attack going on, and we saw those engine companies arrive, and when that first tower came down, we stood there in total realization that what we call brother firefighters were at that moment sacrificing their lives for other people. Because there was no way out. You knew it was happening, and we knew what was happening. And there are times when you put your life on the line to, to rescue another human being in distress. And I did not work with believers. I worked with very precious non-Christian people who were devoted to that cause of giving themselves and putting themselves in harm's way to help their fellow human beings. Uh, people are capable of doing incredible deeds of service. And you can argue the mixture of the motivation, and I can't ferret all of that out. To be sure, I've been around that kind of environment long enough to know that there's a certain kind of uh, of, of, of adrenaline junkies who, who love the challenge of the tones going off and the call coming in. And you can't deny that. You know, there's a certain part of that. And I'm not going to say that every single thing that happens is altruistic. But friends, when you're putting yourself on the line and your life on the line for another person, there's still an element of sacrifice that's involved in that. Whatever led you to that moment. Now is where the rubber meets the road and you're on the line. And people do that for one another. Who do not know Jesus Christ and have no semblance of Christian life. It also does not mean that people never have good or noble ideas or create things of beauty or value. People do amazing things. People have phenomenal insight who do not know Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm not going to mention the names because this is being recorded, and I don't particularly uh, want uh, what could be a negative comment to be out there, but there are two books that I have greatly enjoyed um, and uh, marked them up and tagged the pages and go back from time to time to read them by a woman who was born to Jewish parents in New York who were socialist and atheist by their own conviction. But her grandfather was a committed Jewish rabbi, and he taught her uh, while she was a small child. And then she went on to go to medical school and become a pediatrician and suffered herself from a chronic illness of the colon that was just distressing and went through a lot of pain and many, many surgeries and finally uh, got frustrated with the, the seeming lack of humanness that was in 
contemporary medicine. And she left the practice of pediatrics and moved into a holistic sphere where she is now practicing a more holistic natural medicine dealing with the, the hearts and the souls of people who are going through physical problems. And, and, and I love her writings. She has incredible insight into the human dilemma, an amazing perception of human problems. There have been times when I'll come away from one of her short chapters and say, I don't know how she understands this apart from Jesus Christ. It's just amazing the insight that she really has. And yet I know from her readings, I mean from her writings and my reading of her, I know that she is not a born-again, spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ. She has pursued wisdom and knowledge in, in the Eastern religions. She has pursued her own background tradition of Judaism. She has even had contact with evangelical Christians, whom I am sure have shared with her the gospel of Jesus Christ because of things that she's written. And yet she maintains that all roads ultimately lead to the path of goodness and to the path of God. And that any religion, uh, when uh, seriously embraced, can ultimately take you there. And she remains pluralistic in her thinking and wide open to all comers. And for all of her insight and all of her knowledge into human beings, I still recognize that there's an element missing, and that's that personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. And yet she has written profound insight into human character. Many people have that. People have the capacity to create beautiful works of art. I listen to some beautiful music that speaks to me of God, written by unbelievers. People who do not know him personally, and yet they reveal the stamp of the divine image upon their heart because of the music that they write. I enjoy art and, and looking at paintings and, and images that people have created that have no personal knowledge of God, and yet they have a tremendous insight and an understanding uh, into the beauty of nature, and they've been able to to create that through their medium in a way that can stir the heart. People can invent phenomenal things. They can, they can manufacture incredible things. All you have to do is look around at the amazing inventions. I, I'm just startled all the time at how uh, more uh, you know, electronics are continually shrinking and yet becoming more complex and capable even as they do so. It's phenomenal now what you can put into a little memory node the size of a human cell. It is just amazing what you can do through science and the, the phenomenal imagination of the human mind to, to create such phenomenal instruments. I, I bought a remote control the other day because I didn't have one for, for one of my components and I wanted to get one I could program. I haven't figured out how to program it yet. But, and I've got the, the book, I've got the instruction manual. But the fact that, that, that somebody can put something together that'll do that and work with any set on the market, you know, just by the wiring that's harnessed in this little remote control device. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. All these kinds of things that human beings can do. Total depravity does not mean we're not capable of creativity 
of art, of insight, of noble ideas, of beauty. Total depravity does not mean that we are not valuable. Just look at the national health care tab for the United States. Billions and billions of dollars that we spend because we believe that human beings deserve to be healthy and well and to live as long as possible. And we're in a health care crisis because we have come up with ingenious technologies to improve and prolong human life at horrific prices. And we struggle with the value of that life against the practicality of what we can afford. Because our, our dilemma is, do you just give the best and the finest medicine to the millionaires, or do you make it available to everyone even if they can't work a day or pay a dime worth of taxes? And we struggle with that because we value at some level all human life. We go to incredible lengths to save human lives. We spend untold dollars just to rescue human beings. There is no cost too great when a child has fallen into a well or been in a traumatic accident. We marshal the helicopters. We activate all of the technology. We go to any lengths to try to save that life because we recognize its value. But friends, many times we tend to come to the Scriptures and, and, and come away with the idea, yes, but I'm really a worthless human being. There's a difference in being a moral zero and being worthless. And if you want to know how much your life is worth to God, just look at the cross. God looks at human beings. Let me bring it closer to home. God looks at you. God looked down through history at Paul Randall Martin and said, He is worth to me the death of my son on the cross. I will pay that price for his life. Total depravity does not mean we are worthless. Because Jesus Christ went to the cross to buy you back. Because he thought you were that valuable. So when we talk about total depravity, we are not saying that human beings cannot ever act unselfishly. We can't, we're not saying they cannot act with creativity and imagination and intelligence. We're not saying they have no value. We are made in the image of God, and because of that, we have great, inestimable value. But what does it mean? Well, first of all, it means that the entire human being has been polluted by sin, not just our spirit. 
there is a thinking that says, well, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and brought sin into their lives, they died spiritually, but they still have a mind, they still have a will, they still have emotions, they, they still have a body. Friends, total depravity means that there is not one area of our lives that has not been influenced and affected by sin. God said to Adam and Eve, said to Adam, I don't know how much he said to Eve, but God made it clear to Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. Adam and Eve took of that fruit, they ate it, and they were still breathing. It doesn't look like they died, but they did in ways that they did not fully comprehend. First of all, the Bible says when God made man, he formed him from the dust of the ground. That's our material, physical nature, this body of mine. It contains all the elements that are found in the earth. God shaped this body out of the dust of the ground, breathed into this lump of clay his own breath, the breath, the spirit of life, and man became a person, a living soul. And in that creation, we see the three-part nature of human beings, that we have a spirit, a soul, and a body. The spirit is that part of us that relates to God-like spirit character. That body relates to this material world and the personality that dwells in this human person incorporates those elements into one human being. And when Adam and Eve sinned, their spirit died. The spirit of God left and vacated their body, and their human spirit shriveled up and died in that instant. And if we're going to come back to God, we have to be born again. We have to have that spirit come to life. That's what the second birth, the born again, is all about. That word has been used and abused and misused so that we're almost ashamed to say, are you a born-again Christian? But born-again, you know, is not some imagery of some kind of a country, whatever. Born-again means that my spirit has also come to life. As my body was born, my spirit has been reborn and come back to life. I have been born again. Man's spirit died the day that he ate of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in addition to his spirit, he also was affected in his mind, in his will, and in his emotions. The, the, the moment it happened, the blame game began. There had never been a crossword between Adam and Eve. There had never been an argument. There had never been a disagreement. There was total harmony with each other and with God. And the moment God showed up on the scene and said, Adam, where are you? What have you done? He said, the woman that you gave me caused this problem. And she said, the snake that you made caused this problem. And everybody started blaming God and each other. There was a defect that happened in the will and in the emotions and in the mind. But furthermore, and what they did not realize as well, was that in that moment their bodies began to die. Man was designed to be immortal, but through sin became mortal. And these human bodies, you know, if you survive all the diseases and illnesses, you're still going to get old. It's inevitable. If you avoid all the things that could kill you, you're going to die of old age. 
It's just going to happen. There's no way around it. If Jesus tarries, every one of us is going to face death because these bodies are no longer immortal. You know, and when you wake up in the morning and your shoulder hurts and your knees hurt and it's trouble even reaching for the alarm clock, you know there's something wrong with me. There's something in my body that's not functioning properly. And that will dog your steps until the day that you die. And for those of you that don't have those aches and pains yet, praise God. Thank Him for your youth. Enjoy it. The day is coming. You're going to get there too. It's who we are. We are entirely affected by sin. There's a concept that man's reason is preserved, that somehow our intellect, our logic is going to be uh, functional even though everything else has died. But the Bible tells us that the mind of man is totally bent in the wrong direction. That our, our reasoning powers have been so affected by sin that we can't even think clearly, even when we think we are. In fact, we're so blind we don't even know we're not thinking clearly. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I don't think like you think, because you think wrongly. The scripture says, do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Because it is faulty. It will take you down the wrong path. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge me. I will direct your paths. The scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man. And the end of it is death. Jesus told the story of a wealthy landowner who had a bumper crop. He had an incredible harvest. He had so much harvest he didn't know what to do with his grain and his possessions. And so he said to his servants, tear down the barns and build bigger barns. We're going to put all this stuff away in the storehouse and I'm going to be able to sit back and retire and take it easy. I am wealthy beyond my imagination. And then the Spirit of God came to this man and said, you fool, today your soul is required of you. He had no idea when he woke up that morning and started counting the harvest that it was going to be his last day on the planet. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he made the point and he said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Friends, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you need to take care what you're working for and what you're investing in. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where uh, rust can corrode it and moths can eat it up and thieves can steal it. Don't put your treasures here. Invest your treasure in heaven that is beyond uh, the ability to decay or be destroyed. Do not seek your own interest. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't get all hung up on how you're dressed or, or what you're going to eat or how you're going to live. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And God, your Father, knows that you need this other stuff and He's going to take care of you. John tells us in his first letter, Beloved, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all these things that are of the world is passing away and the world is passing away. But only the one who does the will of God is going to last forever. 
We are constantly warned in Scripture that we have a natural bent to go the wrong direction, to make the wrong investments, to appraise life inappropriately. What do you trade for your soul? Do you know how that translates? It translates down to, to your living, your earning. You say, I, I, I'm trading my time for dollars so that I can spend the dollars on the things that I want. Well, what is your time? That's another way of saying your life. You're trading your life for your dollars. How are you spending your dollars? Where are you investing your life? When you look at that paycheck for a 40-hour week, if you're fortunate enough to have just a 40-hour week, when you look at that paycheck, the next time you get one, you look at it and say, I gave 40 hours of my life for this. How am I going to spend it? My life has already been spent. What am I going to do with the reward in financial terms? Jesus said our thinking is askew until it comes under correction by the Holy Spirit that we're so hung up on investing in this world. And God knows we have to live. He knows we have to dress. He knows we have to have a place to live. He knows we need food to eat. He's not telling us not to be uh, thoughtful about that at all. He said, don't worry about it. Nor is he telling us not to spend any money on it. He knows that. Nor is he telling us not to go to work. The scripture says if a man doesn't work, he he shouldn't eat. That's pretty blunt. If you're not willing to work, just starve. If you're able and you're not willing, go hungry. That's, that's a biblical attitude. I can prove it. <laughs> you know, so, so we're not talking about, but the fact is that we go in the wrong direction naturally. And we invest in the wrong things and we spend our lives the wrong way. Because we are flawed from the inside out. We're flawed in other ways. Human reason is faulty. I've been reading scientific journals for quite a few years and research. And you think, you know, you hear the word science and everybody goes, oh, that's the citadel of rationalism and and reason and, and, and knowledge and understanding. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever met a human being who had no goals, no ideas, No beliefs, no agenda, there wasn't anything they wanted, they had absolutely no purpose in mind. You ever met a person like that? I haven't. I've never met anybody like that. Everybody's got a goal. Everybody's got a plan. Everybody's got an idea. And when they walk into the laboratory, the biggest variable they bring, the biggest contamination they bring into the laboratory is themselves, their mind. There is no such thing as an objective researcher. That human being does not exist. There is no such thing as an objective judge in a court. There is no such thing as an objective politician. They all have a plan. They're all after something. And if you don't think that that doesn't drive what they do in the lab, 
you've totally missed it. I can't tell you how many research studies you can read that are flawed. That's why when they publish scientific research, they do it in what's called peer-reviewed journals. Those are the ones that have value because you put it out there for other people like your training to look at it. That helps to bring some objectivity because no one ever starts an experiment that they don't have something they're trying to find out. And we tend to see what we want to see. It's interesting to me in reading some of the history of medicine that the discovery of things is often by sheer accident. People happen upon it by accident. Sometime read the, the, the tragic and sad story of how doctors learn to wash their hands between patients. And the first guy that came up with the idea was put in an insane asylum and ultimately committed suicide because his colleagues ridiculed him to the extent that he was driven crazy by the rejection of his profession that he would dare suggest to them that they might ought to wash their hands when they leave the autopsy ward and go into the maternity ward and examine women who had just given birth. The idea that they should wash the gunk off their hands from the autopsy table was foreign. And they drove the poor man crazy with their ridicule until enough people came to realize maybe there's something to this cleanliness thing. No one had any concept of how disease was transmitted. We're not objective. We're never objective. If you think you're objective, you're totally blind. You've got an axe to grind. You've got a goal. You have an agenda. And if you don't recognize it, you're already two steps behind. It takes a lot of people even to get close to objectivity. Because we all see what we want to see. And even if we try to open our minds, we are limited in our perspective. You can't see it all at once. Human reasoning is flawed. And it's flawed because of sin. Because not only is it naturally flawed by our limitations, it is also flawed by our agenda. And the Bible tells us that our agenda is leaving God out of the equation in some way. And you know what? You can never be objective about the universe when you leave God out. Because he exists in every part of it. And when you don't want to see him, you're missing the biggest thing on the table. Every single time. There are blinders on our eyes. Finally, it's hard to determine how much is driven by man's pride. Even those heroic acts and deeds can sometimes be polluted by pride. It may not look like bad pride, but there is, there is a kind of pride that drives us. But even more so, how many times in recent years have we been disappointed by great political leaders whose lives ha have been total moral failures? How many times? How many times have we been disappointed by great people who were otherwise 
flawed in some serious way. I could show you the writings of, of one of today's most marshaled CEO that has taken to writing books on leadership and management, and he is respected as one of the greatest gurus of our time in, in terms of leadership and corporate management. But his life is a moral wreck. And no one writes about that. I'm not going to tell you who. <laughs> I'm on tape, remember? But um, you go out there and you look. You can, find, you can find it. Go to the business section and read enough and you'll get information. And why do people like that live the way they do on the flip side? Many times because they feel, I'm making such a great contribution. I am so valuable. I am so indispensable. I am so clever. What I'm providing is so useful that people should cut me some slack. I deserve a little margin for myself because I'm doing what other people can't do. Even when we're great, we're bad. It's amazing what we can get into when we rationalize away our own value or rationalize it into the equation bigger than it is. What does God have to say? Paul writes in verse 10, first of all, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Friends, what this is telling us is that on God's terms, when we stand before him at the judgment on the basis of his law, there is not a human being on the planet that can pass the test. There is none righteous. I, I wanted to do a, a demonstration for you this morning, I, but I just couldn't pull it together uh, as, as the time elements uh, kind of evaporated. But I remember an illustration from chemistry class where you take this inky black stuff, you know, uh, water that looks about black as ink, and you pour something into it and it becomes crystal clear. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have a bunch of those pictures up here and have different levels of translucence and opacity. But friends, everyone has some pollution. And their whole being is polluted. And whether you're the inky black psychopath who's terrorized the planet, or whether you know you look pretty good until somebody puts the ultra-white paper behind your glass and you see it's tinged with the ink. We all have the same disease. And when we stand before God, there is none righteous. Not even one. Not one person. Secondly, Paul tells us, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have become useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. The Bible tells us that there is no one who seeks God. You say, wait a minute, I know people that are seeking God. Hold on. If you know people that are seeking God, you've got to ask yourself which of one of two situations they fall into. If they're looking for God in terms of religion, Man is innately religious because we're made in the image of God. We're made to worship God. It's built into our fabric, and we are innately religious. But human beings do not invent religions that worship the true God of the Bible. They invent idols and systems of their own imagination to assuage their conscience and satisfy their longing. 
people seek after religion, but they're not seeking the true and living God of the Scriptures. So if a person appears to be religiously inclined, it does not mean they're seeking God. It means they're just living out their natural inclination. All human beings have it. That's a part of God's image stamped on us, even though it's been lost. Or, God has already begun to work in their life, and he is drawing them to himself. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whosoever will may come. But the caveat is, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Unless God has begun a work in the heart of a person to bring them to an awareness of himself in terms of truth, there is no one who on their own wakes up one morning and says, I know I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, I think I'll seek the living God of the Bible and see what he has to say to me. No one does that, ever, unless God has first come to them. So one of two things is true. If you see someone who appears to be seeking after a relationship with an eternal being, one of two things, they're either seeking a false religion and an idol of their own imagination, or God has already begun to work in their heart because no one seeks the living God on their own. The reason for that is because not only are we blinded, not only are we in sin, not only are we unrighteous, but the devil has blinded our eyes and seeks to keep us that way. That's why people can look at things that speak of God all over the place and can't see him because their eyes are blinded to his reality. Unless they're opened, they have no hope of seeing the living God. Paul goes on to say their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving the poison of snakes and vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Everyone is capable of unimaginable evil if left unrestrained and fearless of punishment. People who deny the existence of God and persuade themselves of atheism can do amazing things when they have talked themselves out of judgment and now come to power. All you have to do is look at the history of communism. Look at Lenin. Look at Stalin. Look at Mao Zedong. Look at the history of communism and the leaders of communism and what they have persuaded themselves was appropriate and natural to do in the quest of a system, an ideology that was bankrupt from the start. It's unbelievable. Because they ruled God out of the equation, and then they came to power and ruled restraint out of the equation, and unrestrained and without a fear of judgment, the evil that was mitigated by these men upon the, the world is unimaginable. And even Hitler, who didn't necessarily rule God out in terms of theism, nonetheless adopted a prejudicial perspective that allowed him to do atrocious things. But they're just men. They were born to women. 
and raised as little babies and children just like every other human being. And the only reason it wasn't one of us is by the grace of God, the lack of opportunity, and a change of venue. Take away the restraints and take away the fear, and we're all capable of unimaginable illness, unimaginable evil, unimaginable injustice. It's amazing what human beings can do to one another. It's absolutely amazing. And Paul goes on to say, now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by works of the law will no flesh be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul's grand conclusion is that when we come to the end of the day and we've studied the question thoroughly, when we stand before a holy God and his law is before us, everyone will stand in his presence. At last the scales will fall from their eyes. At last they will be able to see themselves as they really are and see God as he really is and no one will have anything to say. For the first time in their lives, with reverence, probably, oh my God, will come out of their mouths as they fall before him trembling in fear. They have no excuse and nothing to say, and there is no justification. Paul's description of the condition of the human heart is that unless God intervenes, we are hopeless. I want to leave you, friends, with two questions, two thoughts. The first one is, you're here today as a born-again child of God, saved by His grace. Think about the implications of total depravity and your knowledge of the Savior. How'd you get here? You're here today because your Heavenly Father came looking for you. Someone shared the message that He had put on their heart. Whether it was a preacher, crusade, or a friend, that told you about Jesus. And something stirred in your heart. And for the first time ever, you saw the light. And the reality of the gospel message came home to you, and you realized you were, in fact, a sinner. And God opened your eyes to your real condition and to Jesus' death on the cross. And he made it personal and upfront to you I gave my life for you. And you responded to him. You're here as a believer today because your heavenly Father sent a messenger accompanied by the Holy Spirit to draw you to himself. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? God loved me so much. that he drew me to himself.
The second thing that I want you to be deeply aware of as we go out of here this morning is you can tell your story. You can share your faith. You can explain the gospel. But unless you do that prayerfully and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will never bring anyone to Jesus Christ. And if you're a sufficiently good salesman that you can memorize a presentation and learn how to close the deal and emotionally and intellectually bring people to sign on the dotted line, the only thing you've done is won a mental acknowledgement. No one will ever be born again in their heart apart from the Spirit of God. No one will ever truly realize their sin unless the Holy Spirit shows it to them. He is the one who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. No one will ever be aware of Jesus' death on the cross unless the Holy Spirit unveils their eyes. Only that person upon whom the Spirit of God is working can be born again. That is why it is so essential that when we share our testimony and our faith, we have to be praying for the people we're talking to. Praying even while we're talking relying on the Holy Spirit to do His work on the inside while we share our message on the outside because only God can take the scales from the eyes. We can share the truth. We can share our salvation story. We can tell our testimony. And we must, and we're called to do it. But only in the power of the Holy Spirit will it change the heart of another person. We must become people who are dependent upon Him to accomplish his work, because you can talk until the day you die and you will not persuade anyone to come to Christ apart from the active working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We are blind beyond hope until God opens our eyes. He uses us. They have to have that witness. They need that message. That's what mission is all about. Evangelism and mission is nothing but telling the story near and abroad of what Jesus has done for me in proclaiming this truth. But unless it's accompanied in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's a useless endeavor. I think that's why so many witnessing programs fall flat and so many schemes and plans and evangelistic concepts fall flat. Because we're out there with a scheme and a plan. But you can't do it without Jesus. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. You can't do it without His work. The most essential element is prayer. Because unless God is working in the heart, the outward message is not going to avail. It has to go together. Father, I pray this morning that you'll open our eyes to our true condition. That with renewed gratitude, we will give you praise and thanksgiving for the fact that you have found us. That you came seeking, just as you did for Adam. Adam, where are you? You came after us. Paul, where are you? Joshua, where are you? Marge, where are you? You came looking. You called out our name. And you have saved us by your grace. You opened our eyes. You convinced us of sin. You revealed to us the truth of the cross. You showed us our Savior. 
and you gave us the faith to believe and the power to embrace that eternal truth to come home to you. We thank you and praise you. And we pray this morning that you will make us an army of witnesses and ambassadors that in the power of the Holy Spirit will go out to testify to the good news that though people are lost without Jesus, He is the hope, the answer, and He is their answer. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. There is no other way, no other name given among men under heaven whereby we can be saved except the name of Jesus. Not because you're a bigot, Father. Not because you're stuck on yourself. But because you're God. You're holy. We've sinned. Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, Joseph Smith, None of these people could die and pay the price for our sins. None of them had that capacity. None of them could prove that they had done it by coming out of the grave. The Lord Jesus is the only one who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died an atoning blood sacrifice on the cross for our sins and rose again. You're not a bigot, God. You've made a way of salvation. That's the only way. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the only truth. He is the way, the life, the path, the water we thirst for, the bread we hunger for. Oh God, help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. People are blind. They ridicule us. They they challenge us for being bigoted and narrow-minded. They want us to be pluralistic and open to everything and everybody, but there's only one way to come back to you. And that way is Jesus. He's the only one that could pay the price. There is salvation in none other. Jesus alone. Oh God, may we with courage and conviction share with humility and brokenness that message that we have heard and that has changed our lives. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and be saved. And what a salvation it is saved from hell, saved from sin, saved from death, saved from fear, saved from addiction, saved from bondage. We can be saved in Jesus. Let us not be ashamed and afraid of these terms that people have so ridiculed. We can be born again through Jesus. Oh God, give us the courage and the grace with your power to share the message of redemption that you have bought us back with the blood of the cross and you are willing to forgive if we will simply bow before you and acknowledge your right to be Lord and King and receive that payment by faith to come home to you. Thank you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.